Okay, well, thank you for coming out on this cold night and uh, being prepared to engage in this conversation with me, and I'd like you to see that, really. Um, you know, I'll kind, of, I'll kind of, my default thing is, you know, I'll talk until you stop me, really, so you need to, sort of, you need to kind of buff in and uh, make it into the conversation. I think it's important that, you know, around this broad subject, which, you know, just have introduced, that, that um, that kind of scratch with you too, really, so I'm, I'm happy to, to be led by you in that respect. Uh, <clears throat> I think that the, the opening sort of bit of, of Reenchant's Christianity, which I, I don't know how many of you read the book, but you know, it, it sort of begins with a story which I stumbled across about the Hopi people in uh, North America uh, and, and about this ritual that they had in which uh, you know, children every year would come to this sort of sacred place where uh, the kachinas, these sort of godlike sort of uh, people there with masks on, would sort of give them gifts and presents at the Alexander Claus and all that. Uh, and this would happen each year until the one year when they've reached a certain age, when they would come to the. Uh, would they come to uh, the sacred circus one time when they've grown a bit older and? Instead of being given gifts, the, the Kachinas just remove their masks, revealing the fact that these godlike, you know, kind of people are actually just ordinary people. They're the people that, you know, their relatives or neighbours or whatever. And it's a sort of moment of, of what I call sacred disenchantment. And the point I've made is that, unfortunately, uh, in the church we have no ritual <laughs> of disenchantment. And so we have to kind of struggle through with this. And there's sort of, I think, depending on the kind of church we're in, where it's coming from, there's a sort of, uh, a sort of pretense, I suppose, really, that, that we can just kind of, and I suppose a lot of people do seem to be able to carry that sort of childlike faith forward into their adult life. And it seems to work very well for some people. But for a lot of us, it doesn't. And I think for a lot of people, there is. A, there is not necessarily a point, though, you know, some people may have a point of disenchantment, but for a lot of us it's a kind of gradual, evolving sense of disenchantment that, uh, that occurs. Uh, and then you're left with this problem that, um, you know, you, you tend to be viewed in many churches as now a backslider, someone who's kind of lost faith or whatever. And the thing which is seldom taken on board, I think, in many churches, is that uh, that disenchantment, deconstruction of faith, is actually part of the faith journey, part of going forward. And uh, and it can be quite it can be quite scary. And it's amazing how many people you know, talk to me uh, or contact me who are going through the scary part of that. You know, who suddenly feel, you know, is anything going to be left at all when I've kind of gone through this process? And sometimes it's not just the person concerned, but others around, you know, relatives, friends, whatever, you know, who think they, that this person is, is kind of suddenly going to kind of lose their faith completely. And some people do. But um, the thing which I you know, said, quoting Scott Peck, um, the sort of psychotherapist who, who, before his death, but very many important books about spirituality as well, is that he said that, that quite often people coming into the psychotherapeutic process, he observed, would come in 
with faith and would leave the therapeutic process you know, as atheists or uh, agnostics or whatever, um, their faith had been deconstructed. And other people would come into it who were atheists or agnostics who would leave it with faith. And this puzzled him until he sort of worked out that actually we're not all in the same place. And that for some people, you know, deconstructing their faith is part of a positive move forward for them as individuals and also part of a positive move, you know, sort of spiritually. So I think that's, that's a process that people all over the place go through and very often. And I suppose, you know, what, it, what I hope a book like mine does and others that are around is to basically say, you're okay, you know, this is actually how it should be, this is, this is a, you know, a positive thing and not something to be uh, afraid of or to pull back from. But the issue, and, and the, the third chapter of, of the book really is the kind of, in a way, the guts of it, it's the kind of, um, where I sort of spell out what, what I suppose is the kind of spiritual and theological posture of the book, where is, where is the book coming from? Um, and so, I've, I mean, I've got, got it here, so I'll just use it as a bit of a crib sheet, really, for, to just pick out some things. But basically, it, it's all about the question of how do we go about connecting our Christian faith with other aspects of our life and experience. This is the problem, really, I think, you know, that, you, that we, we so often end up living in these two worlds, you know, one with the church world, the Christian world, with a whole set of assumptions that, that are there, and then living our lives in the rest of the world, the normal world, <coughs> um, where there's another lot of assumptions. And, you know, sometimes, quite often, those things don't really fit together. And, uh, and that's, that's where the kind of crisis comes. So the question is, you know, how do you sort of reconcile a faith which is rooted in, you know, a historical tradition with our life in the 21st century? And uh, the problem, as I've said in the chapter, centers really on what we might think of as the historical character of the Christian faith. You know, that, that often, you know, Christianity is referred to as a historical religion or a historical faith. The question is, what does that mean? And um, <coughs> Maurice Wiles, who was an eminent sort of liberal-ish theologian, really, in the mid-20th century, uh, dealt with this issue when he sort of identified two possible meanings of the, of, of the term historical religion, one of which is that historical means it's fixed, it's set, it's, this is how it is, don't mess around with it, you know, there it is, you just sort of have to kind of take it and believe it and reiterate it, add information kind of thing. Or, he said, historical might mean that the Christian faith is part of the historical process, that we're part of a, pro of, of a, a, pro a process of progression. And that that is how the Christian faith kind of draws its sort of um, its vigor and its new life from the fact that it is, it is you know constantly being reborn in a sense. You know. um, and what I've said is that, that to some extent I kind of I mean my my leaning is overwhelmingly with the second of those two. But to some extent I think there's a bit of both. In that I think uh, I'm very happy and comfortable to acknowledge that. that I am part of a tradition which is rooted in the past, that there are uh, historical events and a historical kind of affirmation of faith, which is still important to me. Um, 
but I live in the world of the 21st century. So it's, it's kind of it's bringing those two things together. And my way of, of describing that sort of third way, really, is, is to label it as sort of progressive orthodoxy. Um, another little mouthful, really. But um, by that, I mean a faith that's, that's, that's fed and nurtured by a sense of rootedness in the past. So rootedness would be a word that I think I feel is quite important. Um, so it's, 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 it's fed and nurtured by a sense of rootedness in the past, that's the orthodox bit, but it's also shaped and energized by a dynamic interaction with the world of the present, and that would be the, the progressive bit. I think for some people, just, you know, using the word orthodox at all is a problem because it's identified with, you know, kind of this obstinate kind of, you know, uh, rigid sense of being, of just being faithful to the thing in, in its historical form. Um, I, actually, I don't think that's what orthodoxy really means. And um, as I've said, I'm kind of reluctant really to hand the word orthodox over to people who are rigid and, um, you know, kind of, unyielding in, in, in their allegiance to, to that. And it's interesting, actually, I just noticed there a book which I might just buy. Um, there's, a, there's a book in the second-hand section there, which is sort of a, some essays um, by, uh, edit, it's edited by Rowan Williams and, and uh, Kenneth Leach, and there's a chapter in there by Rowan Williams, which is quite a few years back now, long before he was Archbishop, which I found really, really helpful, and it kind of that's what forged this notion of, of kind of progressive orthodoxy in me, in which he says that there are two distinct approaches to orthodoxy. The first is the one that we normally think of as orthodoxy, that of a, a kind of closed system, a kind of predetermined, uh, deep frozen kind of faith, if you like, you know, um, with, which, which allows for no kind of messing around. There's no conversation to be had about it. This is how it is. You believe it or you don't believe it. Sort of and then he talks about a sort of second approach to orthodoxy, which is basically what I would call progressive orthodoxy, um, in which orthodoxy is seen not as that kind of pre-packed truth handed down from the past, but as what he calls a tradition of shared speech, of shared symbols, a living community of revelation and dialogue, uh, a tradition that invites a process of critical questioning. So I like the idea of orthodoxy as a community, community of, in which there's a shared speech and symbols and so on, a community of revelation. And so that immediately sort of raises a sort of thought of something that's progressing and evolving and so on, but which is in a dialogue. And that's the interesting thing which I think I've tried to get across in that third chapter is that my understanding of tradition is not as something which is handed down and preserved entirely as it is from one generation to the next. That, I think, is traditionalism. But I think the tradition properly understood is actually a conversation. And this will be true, you know, whether we're thinking about it in a religious context or in a secular context. I think, you know, we as, as, a, as a nation, as a culture here, have got traditions um, which are all about an ongoing conversation, really. It's an ongoing kind of dialogue between the past and the present. And, and I think, you know, most people with any sanity in their mind value the past. You know, the past is important and we, and we that's, that's part of who we are. But we don't, we don't live in the past, we live in the present. So it's, it's, it is this sort of dialogue. Or indeed, um, you know, what I've also called an argument really. I, I think a, you know, a heated debate. Um, so I think, that, and, and actually I think 
tradition in the Christian context has always been an argument. But we lose sight of that. So that things like the creeds, you know, we sort of you know, have them as these things that we recite week after week and think of them as this sort of um, this, this rigid kind of package that you kind of hand it down and you're supposed to just sort of take it. Well, well, actually, you know, the creeds were forged out of <coughs> centuries of argument, basically. You know, and the, and the great church councils were arguments. Uh, and they didn't just happen, you know, over a weekend or something. They happened over long periods of time. Um, and I don't think that the outcomes of them, probably it was ever envisaged at the time, would be a final destination. You know, this, this. And really, you know, what, what you know, something like the Nicene Creed is doing, say, is, is it, it, it's an apologetic tool. It's a way of trying to grapple with their faith in the context of a culture at the time. You know, so that, um, you know, I mean, Greek thought, with its kind of dualism and all that is, is, is a huge backdrop to quite a lot of the sort of uh, discussion of the creeds. Uh, Gnosticism was a major kind of part of, of the cultural religious landscape. And, and, you know, the creeds and all the arguments and councils were all trying to grapple with these issues, trying to sort of, you know, find the right kind of place. And um, I have no problem, actually, Recited a creed. I don't have a problem with that. Um, but I, I, if I, I take the creeds to be symbols of the faith rather than sort of you know, doctrinal statements. Um, and I think actually that's how, properly speaking, they should be thought of. Um, in the Orthodox Church, uh, the creeds are, are thought of as symbols of faith. The trouble is, if you come from a kind of Protestant evangelical type of background, then you know. You tend automatically to think of them as being statements of faith, you know, doctrinal statements. Whereas actually, I think they're better thought of as being sort of symbols. So, you know, I have no problem saying I believe in God the Father, not because I think that God is male or, you know, as male genitalia or, you know, I mean, that's all obviously nonsense. Um, I think that affirming God as Father is, is a way of saying I, I believe in a God who is personal. Um, and that, you know, my understanding of our relationship with God is of, of a, a relational kind, it's a relational kind of, um, you know, kind of uh, environment. Um, saying, you know, created heaven and earth, I have no problem saying that, not because I think that Genesis gives us any kind of description of how the world was created, but because I think that within and behind the entire process of of, you know, the formation of the universe, the Big Bang, the evolution, all the rest of it, mm. that there is a purpose behind it, that mm. there is a presence within it. Um, and I'm much happier thinking of God probably really as a presence rather than as a person, but, you know, there's another kind of angle. Really. So, but, but, so, you know, I, as I say, I, I, I can accept these creedal statements as being part of the the culture and life of the church, which I honour and respect and enjoy, but I'm not stuck in it. You know, it's, it, the conversation goes on, the argument is unfolding constantly. So, I mean, and, and what I've just said about, you know, the, those kind of statements about the creed probably are not that difficult, the things I just said. It gets a bit more problematic when you go down and you sort of talk about 
um, you know, virgin births and resurrections and all that kind of thing, you know. Um, fundamentally, I would, I would follow the same principle um, of saying that these things uh, symbolize important affirmations of the Christian faith. Uh, what we mean by them, we need to unpack constantly in fresh ways. Uh, uh, Ian sort of mentioned when he sort of asked me to speak tonight about perhaps having a particular focus on Jesus and the Incarnation. I mean, that, that may or may not be what you'd like to talk about. We can go wherever you want to from this kind of foundation that I've just laid. But I think that, you know, the thing which I centred that the chapter in, in this book on the chapter about Jesus is the question that, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer posed um, in his you know, letters from prison at the end, toward the end of the war, um, when he said the thing that was obsessing him, the thing that was troubling him, the thing that was constantly engaging him is this question, who is Jesus Christ for us today? And what is a Christian? You know, these were kind of issues that he was sort of, he was engaging with constantly as he was stuck away there in prison and eventually being executed by the Nazis. Um, and, it, and as I've said, I think, that, I think this question, who is Jesus Christ for us today, is a question with legs on it. You know, it just it keeps going on and on and on and on because you can never stop asking that question with the emphasis on today. You know, who is Jesus Christ for us today? Um, and the way we may answer that today may be different for people in 50 years' time. You know, and, and that's the nature of, uh, of the journey, I think, really. I think that, you know, for me, the, thing, the issue about Jesus is that, speaking as a Christian, and I very happily acknowledge that, um, that the Christian faith is, represents, in a sense, a window on the divine. Um, it is the window that I look through. I've grown up with Christianity. It's the way I think about God, the way I understand God, and not uh, now in a position in which I would say, this is the only window on God. I think that you know, other people understand the divine in different ways, but this is how I understand the divine. Therefore, that's kind of important to me. And from a Christian point of view, Jesus Christ would be you know, the crucial, the critical, the decisive way in which I understand God. Um, so that you know, from, from a Christian point of view, I think speaking, um, the divine is not revealed primarily through words, through a book, though the Bible is important as part of the whole process. But our understanding of what the book teaches, in fact, is that, that God has been revealed in a person. Uh, now, the technicalities of how that works, I'm personally not desperately worried about. You know, So it's, it's been a long, long time now since uh, I came to the position where I felt that what virgin birth meant actually didn't matter to me. Um, uh, for me, I think my belief that Jesus represents uh, a decisive revelation of God, that in a way Jesus is the human face of God for me, um, that does not hinge on a belief in a miraculous birth for me. You know, the miraculous conception and so on. Um, I have no difficulty at all with believing <coughs> that Jesus had 
um, you know, a genetic makeup like the rest of us, you know, um, that he had a, a natural father as well as a natural mother. I have no problem believing that and also accepting the fact that, that God was present in, in, in some uh, decisive way, which, you know, has, has proven to be normative and important to generations of people and still is today. Um, so, uh, to me, there's no kind of, there's no inherent kind of contradiction there about that. I think it, it's been a while since I read, read your book, I think I read it last summer. Um, I think the, the two chapters that landed with me, particularly with the two that you mentioned, the, right. the, the, the crucifixion and the, mm -hmm. the, sort of the resurrection of those two old chestnuts, as it right. um, And I, I, I know everybody in this room might not necessarily share my particular background, but if you come out of a sort of reformed Calvinistic evangelical mm. space it, it, and, and go through this process that you've been talking about so far this evening you kind of do end up with the question well what do I do with those two events mm. then? and I actually thought that, that those two chapters of your book were the most helpful mm. in that respect um, I mean you've talked a little bit about virgin birth and, and how God was present in Jesus Yes. Just uh, as a helpful refresher to me, seeing as I haven't read the book since last summer, <laughs> but also I think it might help the discussion. Is there a sort of summary and substitute? Of, of that particular issue? Of, the, of, of, of either or both of those issues. Yeah. I mean, I, I think. Um, yeah, the, I mean, the quote from Bonhoeffer, which I like very much, is this What is bothering me? That's how you put it. What is bothering me incessantly is the question what Christianity really is, or indeed who Christ really is for us today. Um, and as I say, that's a question that can never really go away. It's, it's every new generation of Christians has to, I think, grapple with it afresh, rather than just sort of parroting the same things that have, that have always been said. Um, and it can't stand still as a question, because the context never stands still. And I think that, you know, uh, the issues that 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 raises for us to, to talk about Jesus, the issue that raises for us today, will be different to the ones that, that did in the, you know, the fourth and fifth centuries when, you know, so much was, was given to it then. Um, and I think it, it, it does involve asking who is Christ now for women as well as men, uh, for the poor world as well as the rich, for gay people as well as straight, for immigrants and asylum seekers, and so on and so forth, you know, that, uh, the agenda shifts, and uh, I think that uh, you know, who Jesus is will be strongly influenced by what your perspective is, where you're coming from. And the interesting thing with that is that I think from a theological point of view, um, the whole onset of what's called liberation theology really sort of shifted the ground on this for us really. Because I think liberation theology, if you don't know, is a kind of uh, an approach to thinking through the Christian faith from the context of the poor, particularly you know in, in South America. And I think suddenly there was this kind of realization that context mattered, you know, and that uh, so much of what had been 
presented about Christian faith, about Jesus, was coming from uh, you know, privileged people. But what about people at the other end of the sort of spectrum? And so, as I say, this, this, you know, all those kind of people I've just mentioned and many more, uh, all need to know who is Jesus Christ from their perspective. You know, and, it, and it's going to kind of be different depending on where, you, where you're sitting, really. Um, for me, as I say, the, the, the kind of affirmation that I, I accept is that Jesus is the decisive revelation of God. Jesus discloses what good God looks like in a human face and what a life filled with God would look like. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I think that, you know, one of the things I kind of raised there was this, this issue that that many of the affirmations about Jesus, about Christology, popularly that you encounter in, in our churches, is very, very close to, to what historically was known as docetism, you know, which was a, a kind of considered a heresy in the early church that stressed the divinity of Christ to the exclusion of the humanity of Christ. And I suppose what you know, the, the, the creeds were all about was trying to grapple with those two kind of issues, really. Um, and I think that the humanity of Christ uh, is a real problem for a lot of people when, when you actually begin to think what you mean by that, you know, what in fact was Jesus like. And the, I mean, the way I put it here, here is that, um, for example, Jesus didn't know everything. Of course he didn't. Jesus made judgments that were less than perfect. Of course he did. Jesus believed things about the world and the universe that we now know to be untrue. Of course he did. He was a first century man, Jesus picked his nose, broke wind, and got impatient with his friends. Of course he did, because these are the kind of things involved in being human. Um, and these are kind of, in a certain way, relatively simple, straightforward things to say. But actually, <laughs> they begin to create a lot of reverberations for people who uh, are coming from what I think is a more docetic view of Jesus. Um, and so the, the, the question is sort of, you know, how does the incarnation work? And as I say, the technicalities of it have never really kind of bothered me a great deal. Um, the, the, the belief that um, uh, the idea of, of the virgin birth is more of a kind of <coughs> metaphorical thing rather than a historical thing, you know, the way that I've argued it here is that from a, from a scholarly perspective, uh, one of the key reasons for treating the birth narratives of Jesus as metaphorical rather than factual is that they are relatively late developments in you know, Christian <coughs> tradition, uh, found only in Matthew and Luke's Gospels. Uh, so the earliest writings of the church, Mark's Gospels, the earliest in the Gospels, um, doesn't have any account of Jesus' birth at all. It starts with, with uh, early baptism of Jordan. Um, John's Gospel doesn't really have it, as a, certainly not in a narrative sense, an affirmation about it. And Paul's writings, which are again some of the very, you know, very earliest writings of the uh, New Testament, um, Corinthians and so on, um, don't have any kind of mention at all of a virgin birth. Uh, they don't really have any record at all or any comment on the birth of Jesus, other than saying he was born of a woman. You know, which is actually not saying anything terribly radical, really. Uh, so it, it's interesting that, that, that in Paul's writings, if, if, you know, which are you know, beloved by the Conservatives, if that was all they did have, in fact, there would be no 
issue about a miraculous birth, a virgin birth, and so on. What you would have, you know, is this assertion of Jesus was, was, was born of a woman, and also that God was in Christ in some specific way, reconciling the world to Himself. Um, so, so the idea, you know, the, the fact of being born of a woman, God being in Christ, and uh, <coughs> And, and nothing really at all, as I say, about, about kind of, you know, there being any kind of particularly miraculous sort of background to that. So that's, that's I think, quite an important issue, really. Um, and uh, that's not to discount the fact that you've got, you know, Matthew and Luke that do give uh, birth narratives. Um, but it's kind of taking it all in the round and sort of saying, you know, you, you need to balance the one thing against the other. And, uh, you know, um, recognise that there were different traditions and different sorts of understandings and insights about, about you know, Christ in the early church. Um, so the stories of Jesus' birth are not primarily concerned with a biological miracle, but with the assertion that God was present in Christ in some in a specific way, really. That's, that's kind of at the heart of what I'm saying. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, to me, the important issue raised by the question of who Christ really is for us today is not primarily about which boxes of orthodoxy that we're going to tick, but rather how are we going to live out the liberating, life-affirming, peacemaking <coughs> kingdom of God that Jesus represented. And that really seems to be a thing that, you know, is so important that is that kind of gets lost in it all, really, you know. Um, you know, what does it all kind of come out as in practicality at the end of the day? You know, what does it do for us? Um, you know, how is our orthodoxy, our faithfulness to the heart of the gospel going to be judged? Is it going to be judged by whether we tick these boxes or by, by whether we sort of take seriously the call to follow Christ? You know, in our world today, you know, uh, and, and um, you know, taking on board both the cost of that and also the, the kind of, you know, the, the calling that it presents to us to really bring uh, a culture of life and hope and liberation to people in the world today. Um, Do you think that the that Christianity can be re-envisaged to the point because one of the things that hamstrings that kind of uh, people in terms of being drawn to Christianity is they just see the teachings of Christ as being about sex. Really, I mean, you know, it's Which you don't really talk very much about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, in a sense it's all about nursery piety and, and the church seems to spend a lot of time talking about sex and relationships and mm. which are important. Way, but it's not the thing stories. But yeah, this, this conversation, this dialogue, this you know, re-envisioning, um, how does it overcome that kind of hurdle of how the people outside look in and think what we're all about? Well, I, th I think this is where, you know, the church and its wranglings about these issues, you know, is the biggest kind of obstacle to people outside taking Jesus and the gospel seriously. Um, and so it's a huge hurdle to get over. Mm. Um, and I think 
you know, speaking as someone who's as a sort of you know parish priest, really doing my job as best I can, interacting with people day by day, week by week. Um, you know, I find I've got to constantly find ways to kind of stick the pin in that, really. You know, to kind of really demonstrate to people uh, that that's not what we're all about. You know, that there, there's there's something something different. Yeah. And um, and actually, I find people are really very ready to respond to that. You know, um, <clears throat> so I think that. You know, shifting the agenda away is, is a big, big task, but um, it's one that we've got to, to get on to, really. And as I say, when you actually come to Jesus, um, you know, how much did he talk about those things? How much were those issues important? Of course, I've been pointed out again and again, you know, it's probably the strongest theme in Jesus' teachings from an ethical point of view all have to do with money, actually. And, um, you know, what we do with our money and how we treat people in an economic kind of uh, framework. But that's so often sort of uh, lost, you know, amid all these big issues that, that uh, people feel to be so important. Really. Um, and I think the thing is that, you know, relations, human relationships are profoundly relational. And uh, I think that this is why in the chapter on the Bible, in, in chanting, you know, I, I talk about this whole notion of there being a kind of trajectory, really. And, um, you know, that uh, Martin Smith King something that the arc of history is towards sort of liberation. Um, and I, I think that this is true of, of, you know, the Bible, of the Gospel that we, that we you know, take out of, out of the Bible as, as a trajectory. So um, uh, what we see in Jesus and what we see in the, in the life and practice of the early church, in fact, is, is sort of part of a, a progressive sort of movement, which I don't think should stop at the end of the Bible, you know, that sort of continues forward. So, you know, when Paul says in Galatians, in Christ there is neither male nor female, you know, the flavor of things on, he was really sort of um, striking at the very basic sort of division and injustices that existed in the world of his day. Um, and from our point of view, looking back, they seem quite sort of, you know, moderate statements to make, but they were hugely important at the time. And I, I think that you know, my belief and my hope for Paul would be that if he were writing that today, you know, he would add other things to the list. And I think, you know, he would say there's not a game of straight, for example. Um, but these are sort of uh, issues which, which are strongly culturally conditioned, but there's a, there's a sort of trajectory of the gospel. And what, what does the freedom of the gospel mean in successive generations? Um, that, I think, is the important issue. Which, which has led in time to, you know, a recognition of the equality of men and women, mm. to a very large degree at least. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, fans out into, into a whole range of different issues in, in the world we're in today. You know. one, of your, in one of your chapters, you, you talk about um, uh, the meaning of the word, the, the Hebrew and Greek behind the, 
of the word kingdom. Mm. You unpack that. Mm. Which, funny enough, I found very, really very helpful. Mm. Uh, and it made me realise how my understanding of Jesus' the scriptures is actually constrained by the words we use today. Mm. My lack of understanding of what goes behind it. But that sense of, in fact, we were having the argument we were uh, having a prayer meeting with a friend who who's um, uh, involved in an AIDS charity and he was really interested in that in a, a third year development charity. He was very interested in that concept of kingdom actually what it means is what you quoted something that said the community of empowerment, something like that. Yes. I mean that you take away that push the word kingdom out of the way. And so all of a sudden mm. the, the Bible mm. the scriptures take on a new mm. you know, dimension. Yeah, it felt like my journey as a Christian has been constrained by words right. of addition. And it is, isn't it? It is constantly. Really. That's, that's the problem. But I think words are very, very powerful and very important in the way in which they kind of um, you know, constrict or release us in different ways. And um, if you grow up in a church culture, then you know, kingdom is just a word that's sort of part of the wallpaper, mm -hmm. part of the mm -hmm. pieces there. Um, and when you stop and think about someone you know, outside of the church taking that word on what that means then it's something quite different mm -hmm. and, um, and it's something that's kind of quite alien and mm -hmm. difficult to get a handle on. Um, but it is interesting that uh, its background certainly, you know, I mean in, in, in Aramaic, the language you spoke, you know, has, has got a much kind of broader sort of feel to it. And, um, People argue that it equally can be queendom, for instance. Um, but that sort of, you know, that there, that community of empowerment, which I think is John Dominic Crasson's kind of mm -hmm. interpretation of it, um, or, or as I've, you know, also developed it as the idea of uh, a universal culture of life, hope, and liberation. You know, thinking of it as a culture, something that we're trying to spread, that Jesus was spreading a culture. And that's very important, you know, that, that's a kind of also a countercultural thing, you know, but in a context in which a certain cultural kind of norm exists, um, that, that the kingdom of God is, is, is a counterculture, you know, which is, which is about, as I say, life, hope and liberation. Um, that, I think, makes a lot more sense to me, really. Um, what's, what's the sort of language you would use if you were chatting about salvation. It's a, a subject I was well acquainted with as an evangelical person. <laughs> and, but I'm not, you know, just slightly playing devil's advocate, but I'd like to know what you, how you would talk to somebody. Yes, I mean, these are such sort of, you know, culturally conditioned words and they very much exist within a subculture. Um, actually, I, I kind of quite like the idea of redemption more, you know, um, the idea of kind of redeeming something is, is, is a word that still has some kind of mileage to us, I think, redeeming a situation or, or whatever. With, um, the, with the life of Jesus? Yeah. 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 yeah that there's a sense of payment. So what, you mean you're talking now about the kind of, the, the, the atonement kind of yeah. aspect of it? Yeah, I mean... You know, what, what I've sort of said in, in the, the chapter that Mike referred to there about, about the cross and so on is, is that you know, I don't think that what Jesus did in dying um, in any way changed 
the way God is towards us. I think that it, it, it is a way in which uh, God opens up the possibility of us changing our relationship to him. And I think that is redemptive. Um, I think the sort of, you know, that, that whole kind of atonement notion, you know, that, that you've got this sort of angry God who, who requires, you know, the shedding of blood and so on. I mean, it, it, it makes no sense to me at all. I can't. Presents such a weird image of God um, that I, I couldn't relate to it at all, really. Um, so, and the interesting thing is, you know, that as I say, you know, forgiveness, for instance, is something that was around long before Jesus, and in fact, before he died, you know, he went around forgiving people left, right, and centre. You know, I mean, that's just part of, you know, your sins are forgiven you. That that was kind of just a given, really. Uh, I, I think that. Um, being on the receiving end of the very worst that the powers of this world can kind of pour out in a scapegoating way on somebody, and that's what I see, you know, was happening with Jesus, mm -hmm. and through that prevailing with, with love and forgiveness and the desire, you know, the grace to reconcile, that I think is a powerful, you know, powerfully redemptive thing powerfully redemptive force. Um, so to take that on back to the first question, how do you how do you talk to somebody about that and somebody who's not a part of the church, somebody who's wants to know what we're all about, how do you make that apply to their lives? I can't say it's a big theme that I would take up with people really. Um, I th I think that you know I'm very happy to you know present you know, the death of Jesus as being uh, a gross injustice of which there are many in our world, in which many innocent people, you know, uh, are persecuted and lose their lives at the hands of abusive powers that be. And I think that <clears throat> Jesus uh, was um, executed, murdered by the powers of this world, the powers of the um, as, as an innocent victim, and I think that this is about God being present in the sufferings of the world, being present in the pain and sufferings of the world in, in a real and kind of tangible way, which I, I think, you know, God continues to be involved with. Um, so, I don't know if I'm getting near to your question. Really. Well, I think what you're revealing is that for you, correct me if I'm wrong, the life of Jesus is probably more important than the death of Jesus. Well, I think the death of Jesus is part of the life of Jesus, yeah. I, I think it's all part of a whole, and I think, um, you know, theologic, theologians tend to talk about the Christ event as a way of talking about the whole thing, and I, I'm more comfortable with that, really. And, and I think that the incarnation was about the whole Christ event. Um, so that I think that his life um, was clearly a, a constantly redemptive kind of, ex, you know, sort of experience. It was constantly redeeming people and situations. Um, and, you know, his death was a part of, you know, it was a piece with, with the whole thing, really. It was the, the ultimate kind of 
fulfilment of, of what had been occurring throughout his life, really. Is it the first time I was wondering what you were talking about? Because the, the, the words redemption came <coughs> for me, and I was thinking it's more like a, it's more like a tapestry, the issue of a jigsaw puzzle or a mosaic, but his death is one part of it, and his life is, is the whole thing. And I was just thinking, you were talking about, I was working for that wonderful therapist I was working with a young girl today who had been really badly, in a really badly abusive situation at the school that she was in, and we'd done some work and she'd worked through it, and really traumatised her. And then she was talking about wanting to sort of punch the lights out of this guy. <laughs> <laughs> He'd done it, and I said, well, that's, I understand. that's an interesting way, but I'm wondering about how it feels about actually forgiving her, and realising that she now has issues in her life. And she sort of looked at me and she said, and then we talked about what that might make different for her, that she could go on being angry, and wanting the kid to make this girl. And I then talked about the power of forgiveness. And, I mean, I didn't mention Jesus, I didn't know mm, mm. But I talked about her in Northern Ireland, how people who were able to forgive actually became like, healed by it when they had, you know, thoughts and feelings. And she suddenly said, that's it. You know, I don't have to live under what I've experienced. And so we talked about the redemptive power that uses like different words. And I think that's more powerful. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Mm. Actually, the power of redemption, actually our world needs to hear it. Mm. Uh, and for me it's like a mosaic of the death, you know, rather part of the mosaic, part of the difficult puzzle, rather than the pinnacle that's been made. Mm. And it's only one part of the story. I think that's true, but when it's been so axiomatic to your faith, mm. to your point, yeah, you do need to kind of engage with it at some, in some level and go, okay, so what do we do Obviously, one way to say, well, just don't make such a big deal out of it, see, it's part of the whole cloud. But that's kind of not, you kind of need a better reason than that, I think, to, to come back. Do you know what I mean? Do you know, do you know what I'm saying? I'm saying mm. it requires a bit more of a working through than that for some people, mm. um, which I think is kind of what you were driving at a little bit. I thought, I thought the, the Bruegelman stuff that you talked about in the book was really helpful on that. <laughs> right. Uh, do you mean, are you mean specifically to do with the death of Jesus? Yeah, I think yeah. that the, the crucifixion event and the resurrection event, particularly, I thought, I thought both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that I don't know. I, I don't know who you think of, really, but I mean, I think that you know, the work of Walter of um, Jürgen Moltmann has been you know, kind of very influential to me as well. You know, his, his, <clears throat> one of his earliest books was called Crucified God, and. Uh, a lot of traditional theology has sort of um, affirmed the notion of divine um, uh, impassibility, you know, this sort of idea that, that God cannot in God's self actually enter into, you know, sort of human suffering and, and pain and so on, that God is actually transcendent human experience in that sense. And I think Maltman's kind of work has, has been very much focusing on the thought that, uh, that, the, that the crucifixion is God, the, the, the epitome, the kind of, you know, the, the kind of very essence of God, the divine, entering into human suffering and human pain. Um, so that kind of question, which, um, you know, famous the story of the, the little boy being uh, hanged in a concentration camp, you know, and, uh, and everybody being made to watch this, this, this little boy being you know, executed. 
as his body kind of trembled and so on. Everyone's sort of standing there, they're forced to watch this, and, and a voice coming out of it saying, where is God now? And, and another voice sort of saying, he's there, that is, you know. And um, you can interpret it in lots of different ways, but it's sort of the idea that, you know, that's what it's about, that, that God was, you know, there in that dying, in that pain, in that suffering. And that that is ultimately a very sort of powerful expression of, of victory over evil and sin and so on and so forth, you know. So for me, the death of Jesus is incredibly important. It's very central to my faith. Um, as part of the mosaic, as you said, mm -hmm. there's no conflict with that, I think. Um, but, but this was kind of, is the, for me as a Christian, the kind of, the ultimate expression of the divine present in human pain and suffering. And, and bearing the kind of, uh, the very worst, everything, all the hatred and, and scapegoating, all the worst things that the world can actually sort of come up with, which it comes up with millions of people all over the world, you know, but focused in the person of Jesus, you know, recognizing this one saying, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, you know, this sort of, this triumph over and all in the midst of it is, I think, hugely powerful and liberating. Um, not because God needed that to happen so that God could sort of feel better about us and forgive us. Um, that, as I say, to me makes no sense at all. But, but um, I think it's, it's, it's um, the evocative event that causes human beings, cause me, to change my kind of uh, approach to God. You know, that suddenly it, it makes me open to God. Um, and, and that is a transformative event. So I think the cross is hugely transformative, not because, as I say, you know, it's kind of, this is the thing that enabled God to forgive us, but because this is the ultimate act of grace, of love, of forgiveness, um, which evokes within us the kind of... So it, <clears throat> it's kind of... Um, it's more than just an example or a demonstration of love, <coughs> something which, which actually is kind of transformative. <coughs> um, once you kind of open your heart and life to it, you know. Yeah. God is disembodied and completely 
disinterested in, in the material nature of things. It's just That's so important, haven't mm -hmm. you? You know, hit right on it. I think that mm -hmm. this is, you know, if, if the incarnation.